I know you're all here for the boss, but you'll have to suffer through 15 minutes of me first, I'm afraid. It's going to be kind of strange, actually, because I'm looking up a bunch of faces that I'm much closer to in age than Carl is. And I only left university about four years ago. So it's been a bit of a weird time. I remember actually, when I first went to uni, we were in a very different stage of discourse than we are now. Because I remember doing housework and listening to the SJW cringe compilations. <laughs> and we all laugh, and it was, it was good fun. I much preferred when the feminists were standing on street corners with very identifiable, toxic hair, screeching about patriarchy and one in all the institutions, running everything. And that was a hell of a lot more fun time. But things have gotten pretty serious. Uh, they started getting serious for me when I was in my second year because we ran a society a hell of a lot like yours. We had a Students for Liberty chapter um, back before they decided that open borders and trans ideology were something worth investing in. So back before they were super cringe. Um, and I've just realised I have put my microphone on mute. So that's very silly, isn't it? There we go. Wonderful. Brilliant. Yeah, so I remember in my second year we did an event right at the start of the year and we invited a speaker, it was kind of contentious, and we rallied the Feminist Society and the Antifa Society right outside, and they were sanctioned by the student union, who were found to be in a group chat that said, we're going to bait them into being abusive so they can start fights at the event, and we can shut the event down. Uh, said speaker was Carl, actually, funnily enough. So your very presence created a monster. Um, at the time, there was a woman in the front row screaming epithets and trying to record the event, which wasn't allowed, burst into the toilets in tears, and then found my ex-missus in there and went, hang on a minute, you aren't delusional and you don't hate men, what are you doing here? Um, and what ended up happening was our society got hounded by this group. They defaced the sports centre with graffiti, they decided to create a bunch of edgy screenshots and out-of-context jokes to get our society shut down. We went through a full hate speech tribunal, chaired by one of the members of the student union that had tried to start the fight. No conflict of interest there whatsoever. The diversity and inclusion head, who would later be published in The Telegraph, was saying, if you can wear second-hand clothes, you're white privileged. Work that one out. Um, she brought up references to the Daily Stormer and said that the Nazi party used humour to recruit members, therefore your jokes are part of the Nazi party. Um, so we were each fined hundreds of pounds per word with the threat of having our degrees rescinded if we did not comply. And so you could understand how that might have made me a little bit bitter. I was henpecked by the longhouse into standing here now, and so I decided to jump into the fray and become one of their worst nightmares, and hopefully I've done alright for the time being. And I think that's happened to quite a few people now. I think cancellations are running their course. I think you can see that with the relentless attempts, for example, to any time Elon Musk gets brought up, and don't wrong, he's not exactly our guy, but any time he gets brought up, there's always the accusations of, there's rampant disinformation, there's racism, there's sexism, um, all of it is hilarious, I'm sure. Uh, but as soon as the charge of anti-Semitism hit with the ADL, he just said, no, actually, you're just using this as a, as a cudgel. It's not a legitimate concern, and I'm not gonna be bullied into compliance. So it seems like the worm is turning in that people have realised they've cried wolf one too many times and their charges just aren't sticking. Now there is a bit of a divide in discourse and I don't wish to excoriate some people in the anti-woke coalition too much, but there is a split between people who I think understand this lack of reciprocity 
from other people, and the other people who still want to be seen as considerate and respectable by the other side. The, we just need a conversation, we can settle everything through debate, can't we just be nice and get along with the people who hate our very way of life? Um, I don't want to name names, James Lindsay, but <laughs> I do think there's lots of people that section off a sphere of dissident thought because it doesn't abide by liberal principles. And they would quite happily to return to a V to the 1990s Fresh Prince period where everyone was just getting along. And I think that's fundamentally naive. I think that we can't go back to the SJW cringe compilation where we're all laughing along. I think we can't go back to the 1990s because that was the fertile soil from which the current malaise that is cannibalizing every single institution rose. And the reason I think that, and this is something that, that Carl has spoken about many times, it's that the charges of equality and prejudice that they level at liberals only work within the liberal paradigm, mainly because liberalism as a political philosophy has no normative shared vision to put forward. So in the gap, lots of people's personality temperaments decide to fill it. And there's plenty of people who are very conciliatory and care about equality and, and treating people nicely. And that is used against them by the exact kind of activists that would like to profit off of a perpetual problem. And so I don't think liberalism as a paradigm can lead us out of this. We, we cannot go back to Fresh Prince, much as those episodes were very funny. I think what we need to understand is the friend-enemy, the distinction, is not just right-wing repressive tolerance. It is the knowledge that if we stay mired in debate, if we legitimize the questions of the very foundations of our civilization, then we are paralyzed by analysis while some insidious forces gather and threaten our way of life. This is, this is what Schmidt spoke about, and you don't have to endorse his signing up to the mid-century Germans, which I do not, obviously, if anyone's listening, um, in order to abide by this astute observation that a liberal, if he is someone who cannot take his own side in an argument, is the kind of person, while Christ is being crucified, who will convene a committee to decide whether to pick him or Barabbas, and by the time they've decided something, an innocent man has been put to death. This is what is happening right now. There are plenty of people that would like to paralyze our ability to mobilize and resist and break free of the liberal paradigm, which stops us rejecting the very framework which has cannibalized all of our institutions. Now, that is all a very long-winded way of saying we need to rebuild some kind of paradigm that is insulated from those charges, something more metaphysical than the current long arc of progress idea that we are locked into, that our entire political class is locked into. There's a reason why the Conservative Party are Blairites. It's because they agree on the inexorable destination of technological society, they're just complaining about the rate of change, speed of the car as it's careening off a cliff with all of us in it. And we've paid for the petrol, of course. So we need to reconstitute a new way of thinking about ourselves that isn't just adding people up like numbers on a spreadsheet or human being counters and thinking, as long as we just keep the GDP ticking over, then everything's going to be hunky-dory. I think that involves something metaphysical, trying to engender ourselves a sense of healthy, proximate distance from a higher ideal that stops us leaning into that Promethean instinct to micromanage the world, something that keeps us humble, something pre-industrial more so, where the family was the primary unit of classification rather than the atomized individual who has to buy meaning from various corporations linked to various governments who hate your way of life. And so you've got to conceive of yourself as some kind of narrative being. It's a weird way of thinking about it. 
but you need to place yourself in some grand story. And that story means you are not that atomized individual, you are an inextricable element of your nation, your community, your family, and you have bonds of obligation that you cannot sever, that you did not choose, but that are deeply meaningful to fulfill. And I'd say all that because I think this is no secret. For our generation, we don't really have much of a calling. There's a sort of lostness. We're nostalgic for something we didn't really inherit. I got into this with Peter Hitchens on Twitter when he called me a Trotskyite, which was kind of like your dad telling you that he's disappointed at you at the Christmas dinner table, really. But I said to him that myself and many of us are the people that have grown up in the world where all of his predictions came true. And so I, sorry, I couldn't have read your column in 2003 because I was five, Peter. But given that you observed all of those things that came to pass, the destruction of Britain by Tony Blair, the, con the continuation by David Cameron, and now, I mean, again, party's totally indistinguishable, uh, what do we do? And he didn't have many answers. But I think we all feel that on we, that we were robbed of something before we were even born. And so that needs to be a rediscovery. It's not conservation, it's retaliation being quite reactionary because we have nothing to conserve, everything to build. And so we need to abandon the exact kind of mental paradigm that has got us here, that has all of our international ungoverned institutions and currently unelected prime minister marching in lockstep towards a destination that we don't quite want to live in because everything's deteriorating. And so what that means is some tangible personal things because Frankly, we're not really getting much in the way of political solutions for a little while. I mean, it's almost inevitable that I prefer Davos to Westminster. Keir Starmer is going to be prime minister and we're going to get um, progressive accelerationism rather than progressive gradualism. I mean, it's not going to be much worse, but it's going to be a little bit worse. Online harms bill is going to suck for lotus eaters, but we'll work that out as we come to it. So all we can do is insulate ourselves from the coming collapse. I'm really resisting the urge to say ride the tiger, definitely. <laughs> but what you need is to get offline, Mostly. Touch a bit of grass. Mm, not the kind of, well, not the kind of Pete Hitchens wouldn't want you to touch, of course. Um, take your nan to church, and I mean that, even if it's just showing up and going, even if you don't quite believe it, um, these sort of institutions will become the mausoleums and sepulchres to dead ideals that Nietzsche warned about, unless we show up. And building community is the only way out of this, because they are relying on you being the exact kind of resentful, lonely individual to not part of a fight. Um, I think there's already a sort of backlash against the sexual revolution style campus culture that's happened. I think you can see the likes of Louise Perry and that articulating it for women. I think there is a vacant spot in the culture for someone to do that to young men, um, especially because I wouldn't say Andrew Tate fills that role, considering he went from pimp to imam. Um, not, not, not our guy, maybe. But the catalyst to restitution is to insulate yourself in your own little family unit. And it's actually really difficult to do that because I'm sure lots of you guys have moved a fair far away. I mean, Exeter's the middle of bloody nowhere. Why did you choose this place? Um, it's quite difficult to stay interconnected to family across generations. This is one of the main reasons why Carl set up his business in Swindon. Um, where you've lived for a very long time, but it's one of the main reasons why I get five hours of trains to and from work every day is because I'm within walking distance of both my grandparents and I wouldn't want my future kids to grow up without them and without all of the great things that they imparted on me. So bring your family close, start new ones, 
If you are enmeshed in online discourse, don't be so esoteric as to be impenetrable. There's a reason why I still show up on GB News from time to time, and that is because you need an ear to the ground with what the normies will let you get away with saying. Turns out it's quite a lot, so that's quite good. Um, but yeah, the observation on the discourse is that it's actually so serious now that we can't afford to laugh like we used to. But if we do the right things, we'll win and we'll be able to laugh about it afterwards. can't even imagine what it must be like to be young now, actually. I kind of, I'm really glad I'm not, actually. No, I'm, I mean it, right? Because you, you guys have no idea the world I grew up in. And I'm just looking at the world you guys grew up in, I'm like, God. It's genuinely horrifying. I don't know how a single one of you can smile. I mean, who has, who's concerned about food at the moment? Let's get a show of hands. Who's, who's having trouble buying enough food through the week? It's a lot of you, right? That wasn't normal. When I was listening to speeches in university, when I was like 20, 21, or however old I was, that wasn't normal. Like there wasn't a single institution in this country that said no white men. Not one. That was un abominable. It was unthinkable. And yet this is your normal lived reality, right? You're bound to have all seen some kind of racial activists on your campuses. And if not here, definitely elsewhere. Never happened just 20 years ago. But this is the world you live in where there's an active racial animus against you. Just today, The Telegraph reported on a children's book that said the people who built Stonehenge were black. Why would they lie to children? You can laugh, but why is there a power operating in your society that's lying to children, my children will be, because that was the, the age that it's aimed at, about the racial history of Britain. Like, I would never have dreamed that would have ever come up, but that's the world you live in right now. Someone is out there with the intent of making you think that your ancestors aren't from here. That's scary, isn't it? That's really, really scary. And then you look around the world and everything's falling apart. Like the roads didn't used to be this bad, but the quality of the buildings didn't used to be this bad. And the change is happening really, really quickly. I mean, when I went to university, London was majority English. It is now a minority English city, as is Luton, as is Birmingham, as are many other towns. Like the state of the, the, state of the country is un unbelievable. And the pace of the change is just it's a cavalcade, and it's just tremendously bad news. I mean, who's looking at the future and thinking, right, I can see a, a light at the end of the tunnel, right? Because, I mean, at least if there was a light at the end of the tunnel, you'd be like, okay, I'll just grin and bear it. I'll get my head down. It'll be okay. We'll just get through it, and then at least we'll be where we want to be. But, I mean, who's feeling that way? I'm, I'm genuinely worried about my kids' futures in this country, and this is what Peter Hitchens keeps going about. Look, this country's falling apart. It's done leave. This ancient civilization 
is breathing its last gasp. And literally millions of foreigners are coming here to get while the getting is good. I literally see them every day, every single day. Swindon is just a small provincial, well, not small actually, it's quite big, but it's a provincial place, right? You wouldn't expect to find North Africans in Swindon. That's just a weird thing to happen, right? It's not that they're not welcome or anything like that, it's just weird, because they speak French. And so it's like, how did you end up here and not in the French version of Swindon? You know? Like, why are you here? And I walked past, the other day, I walked past three different groups of North Africans, all speaking French. I was just like, that's so weird, because five years ago that didn't happen. Five years that didn't happen. And now, ask Connor, walk through Swindon Town Centre, it looks, aesthetically, a lot like Exeter. It doesn't look terribly different. It's just an English town in the middle of nowhere that nobody really cares about, except now it's full of foreigners. And they're not from any one place. Because if it was, you know, if it was Bangladesh or something, you go, okay, okay, fine, fine. What are they like? You could get to know them. But these people are not residents of the place. They're from everywhere. There's no one group that has come. They're from absolutely everywhere. So you walk past people and you think, okay, normal people, and maybe they're residents because they, they look white Swindonians. No, they speak some sort of Eastern European language. Okay, Polish shops spring up, Romanian shops spring up. Okay, fine. African shops, Bangladesh shops, Pakistani shops, Indian shops, Gurkha shops. Like what, what is going on? This is not your country anymore, is what this means. That's what this is a signifier of. Someone else occupies the country. The thing is, they don't possess it. They merely exist here while the getting is good. And one of the most egregious things for me is every single day, I get up, get ready, come to work, work hard, pay my taxes, go home, look after my kids. Every single day, I go out to lunch and there is a group of Somalis who are just sat at a cafe. Every single day, it's the same ones. I recognize them, it's the same ones. They do not have jobs, but what they do have is taxpayer-funded residence at the local hotel that's literally a minute's walk from our office. And if you go online and try and book a room at that hotel, you'll find that into the foreseeable future, every single room in that hotel is booked. There's also a collection of bikes that are chained up outside this hotel. Now, this state of affairs has only been going on for about six months. So how have all those bikes got rust on them? How are all those bikes? I mean, they literally look like they're about 10 years old. It's because they're all stolen. This is the country in which you live. And what is the government doing about it? Absolutely nothing. They're making it worse. The institutions are ranged against you. They're ranged against this country. They're going to continue like this. And Keir Starmer's not going to change any of this. I mean, to be honest with you, actually, I'm more optimistic about Keir Starmer than, than you are. I actually think that he'll listen to Tony Blair. And he'll say, okay, yeah, we probably shouldn't have a million new immigrants a year. We'll have 500,000 a year. Oh, thank God for a return, you know, to, to normalcy. <laughs> it, is, it is madness, absolute madness. And then so you ask, well, what's changed? Well, really nothing has changed, right? The ball has been set in motion before you were even born. And now it's just rolling further and further down the hill. What's changed since 2016? Not much, really. The institutions that then were captured by social justice, woke, whatever you want to call it, this, this leftist ideology, are just continuing on. I mean, the example, of course, is Russell Brand. 
right at the moment. The, the quintessential, I'm so glad this came up actually, I'm so glad this happened, because it's at least good to see everyone in the country have the same thing shoved in front of their face every day. Because look at the arguments they're making. They are the same arguments feminists were making back in 2013 to justify this. Oh, women are afraid to, just, to go and report rape, blah, 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 blah. Look at the rape statistics. Look at how few prosecutions are out. It's like, nothing has changed. Nothing about the way that the regime that operates this country does its business has changed. However, reality has changed. You can look around and see that reality is different. Things are chipping away. And you, because of the continual degradation of the world they are trying to bring into existence, the damage that's doing to the world that actually exists, you can feel a tension in them. They are repeating the rote lines over and over and expecting them to land with you, but do you feel them landing? I don't see this. I see lots of kickback against it. I read every, well, not newspaper comment sections, but every uh, Facebook uh, page of the newspapers. And in all of these, it's just normal people. Some guy who's a builder in Essex, blah, blah, blah. Just giving them hell of almost every divisive narrative that they put out, especially over this Russell Brand thing. There seems to be a lot of women in, this, in defense of him, which is weird, because you would think that, I mean, the, the narrative itself is obviously crafted to poison Russell Brand against women. Now, hey, I fucking hate Russell Brand, right? <laughs> You're all too young to remember how annoying he was on TV, especially before the internet, which again, you don't remember. Um, <laughs> he was on Channel 4 a lot. He was on TV a lot. And he was insufferable. He was really, really insufferable. He was just that kind of guy that you just didn't want to be around. And yet he was really popular with women. And so he was on TV a lot. And so it's very interesting to watch him turn into some kind of hermit, some kind of weird guru, and then get totally thrown out under the bus. Because I don't think anyone really expected it. Russell Brown was very much a creature of their making. He's very much into their politics. I mean, there's a clip going around of him telling Peter Hitchens that he's homophobic, and Peter Hitchens just like, you are so far out of your depth. You don't know what you're talking about. And now Russell Brand is learning the hard way that actually Peter was right. He didn't know what he was talking about. He was just parroting the rote, woke lines. So, how have things changed? Well, they've gotten worse, and they're going to continue to get worse. There's no avenue for them to get better, because the people in charge don't know what that would look like. They don't know what it would mean, and they don't know why what they're doing is failing. Connor had loads of great advice for what you on a personal level should do. You should make sure that your personal life, to the extent that you control it, is in good condition. Be a virtuous person. Have strong relationships with your friends and family. Do the right thing. That's all you can do in the face of what is ranged against you. Because like I said, I am not jealous. Like, oh God, I can't even imagine what it must be like to have had a mobile phone when you were 13. Like, I don't think you guys know just how debauched you have become by the modern world. Like, when I was, when I was, who watched porn when they were, before they were a teenager? Did any, Jesus Christ. That is monstrous that that was done to you. Monstrous. Like, <laughs> you, you don't know what, has been done, that what you could have had and should have had, that what should have been handed down to you, that wasn't, 
because you're white. Because you're white men. You understand this, right? It's not me. I don't care about race. I'm a 90s child, right? I come from the liberal individualist worldview. It's taken me a long time to extract the goop of that off of me, to be able to understand what liberalism is and what's happening. It's what they say. They say it all the time. And I know you've heard it a million times. White men are the problem every day. So, like I said, just you've got to look to your own defenses on this one. Unfortunately, Honorius's dictum to Britain is all I can give you. There's nothing else, but you have to build, you have to network, you have to coordinate, you have to make sure that you don't let this get you down. I know it's kind of difficult because there's no good news, but things have been worse and probably will be worse in the near future. Um, so all I can say is good luck. Well, yeah, hands up. Yep. So I appreciate the various sort of references to Peter Hitchens. And one of the things he says is emigrate. Uh, yeah. uh, despite my accent, I'm actually, I'm actually British and I was born here. Um, my dad raised me to think of myself as English. So I, I'm invested in this country. Mm -hmm. But I inherited from my father a flat that's worth 100,000 pounds. And that's about three quarters of a million Canadian. And my Canadian friend who's a farmer tells me, I can buy 50 acres in a house in you know, the Laurentians for about that much money. Now, I'm aware there's a narrative like, no, don't give up on this country, don't. But there's a premium that emigration brings with it that you can't get in this country, which is just physically space. And the ability to go out and to be like, no, leave me the hell alone. And, and actually having this physical space to be able to do that is really, I don't think people in this country think about that because they are so close to each other. And when I live in, and it's very, it is sort of difficult for me to walk around this country because I feel like I'm in a rat maze everywhere I go. And I get that that's like how this country is developed. But when I think about the opportunity to buy 50 acres and disappear into the Canadian wilderness, as much as I love this country, as much as I want to commit to this country, and it's not about emigrating, I can't do that here. So am I giving up on England by, by doing that, or am I looking after my interests by going out and buying 50 acres and a house in the middle of Canada? I mean, the answer is you're doing both. But it's not wrong that you do it. I mean, I, interestingly, you say that you, you feel uh, England's claustrophobic, because uh, I, I find America, uh, I get agoraphobia in America. Uh, everything's too wide and too flat. And I don't know why. why. Why do I have to walk five miles just to go and get a cup of tea? Um, there's no, no reason to stay that isn't sentimental. The only reason you would stay is if you were emotionally invested in something about this country. Uh, every, I mean, this is why Pete Hitchens, that's his only advice, just leave. He doesn't have a destination in mind, just go. Because there is no economic incentive to stay here. So can I, can I just add yeah, yeah. a question? Is there then a reason to still be sentimental? Is like, is like in, in this sort of calculating way, should we continue to be sentimental? I don't like how that's framed. I, yeah. I, I don't think you can calculate sentiment. I think, I think that's, they're, they're at odds. 
And from the way you phrase your question, it sounds to me like your mind's already made up, whereas I can just speak internally, having traveled in many other places. And even though I really like the States, um, I agree with the agoraphobia point, I, I think that if the revival comes somewhere, it'll probably come there first, but I couldn't live anywhere else. I know that to my core, I wouldn't feel at home anywhere else. And if you can honestly say you would feel home elsewhere, then that just means that, that we're po possibly just not describing the same phenomena. But I would guarantee there are people in here that would just go, if, if I had to flee, it would not be by choice, it would be because I would be pushed out and I would be, feel bereaved of the place that I've left. Yeah, that's yeah. fine. I really don't blame you for having this question, though. It's totally rational. It, it is totally rational. And no one can make the choice for you, obviously. It's completely your choice. But what choice do we have, really? Like, if we do this, then we abandon literally over a thousand years of continuity. And I, I don't want to do that. So uh, why do you guys do what you do then if, uh, if our political demise is a foregone conclusion? Wouldn't you have much happier lives basically if you just kind of plugged yourselves back in and pretended that everything was fine? Especially because um, you guys obviously are, um, fight these political fights in, in such a high profile way. That, uh, why, why do you do that? Why do you do it? I don't think it's a foregone conclusion. I, I, I think on a, on a long enough timeline well, we're battling against the forces of tech, but that's another, that's another question. On a long enough timeline, lots of their plans may run into the forces of entropy. Um, but it's also because, so before I was doing this, before I was even politically involved, um, alongside working in a think tank as well, because I helped, I helped set that up as soon as I came out of uni, and I wasn't paid for any of that. I was, I was digging gardens for a living. Great, brilliant. Every man should have a manual job. That's another bit of recommendation. Like, if, is there anyone here who hasn't worked proper manual labor job? Not just retail. Right. Go it's all of them. <laughs> right. Right. Fellow Zoomers, go and spend the summer. Seriously, if you do not have your hands calloused by a shovel, you do not know what it means to work. And, and it's really rewarding as well because you're making something tangible in front of you. And the reason I say all that is because I would probably be much happier knocking up fences again. Mm. It was really nice, but they just didn't leave me alone. Like, d they will never leave you alone. And so I would feel ashamed if I had not done my part to at least attempt to speak into being a better world to raise the kids I would like to have in the future in. And if I go down with the ship, well, at least I tried. Yeah. I think it's important to make sure that you have a long view of what you expect your life to be. Because I was raised not to have that. Right? I was raised on, and it was, in it, it was everywhere. Right? It was absolutely everywhere. Uh, literally just do nothing. That's literally the message that was imbued into us in the 90s. Do nothing. You can see it in all the media. Go back and watch TV shows like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air or something, right? What was Will's goal in life? Nothing. He had nothing. He was a nobody. He was going to be a nobody. You can listen to the music from like the 80s and 90s. There's, there's, there's one particular song by uh, Meatloaf, if you've ever heard of him, right? That literally has, it goes something like, a wasted youth is better than a wise and productive old age. Who the hell wrote that? Why the hell are kids listening to that? That's atrocious. But look at what happened to Kevin Smith. I mean, Kevin Smith was the archetypal slacker of the 90s, yep. and now he's crying on camera at every single Disney product that comes out. It is, he's he's C.S. Lewis's chestless man. It is pathetic, right? Actually, no. You have actually been given something from the past, and actually you need to 
think about what you're going to do to uphold it. That's your life plan. You should have one. And it's really weird that we're in a position where that would be the case. Because, I mean, in ancient Greece, it used to be you didn't want to judge whether a man was happy until he was dead. Because then you can actually judge. Because it could be that the gods were setting his life up to be a tragedy, actually. And so when uh, Solon was asked by uh, Midas or someone like that, um, you know, who's the happiest man in Greece? He thinks about it and goes, well, there was this one guy who was an Athenian, who had three sons, was a wrestling champion, and died in battle. He, he's the happiest. So have a long view of your own life. You have to think about what you expect out of the future. Don't just think about the immediate time. Like playing video games, man, I wish I didn't play video games. I wish that wasn't my habit. It's such a waste of your time. You know, you get nothing done. Literally, it would be better to do anything else. Literally anything, exactly as Connor says. It literally, if you were just to go out and stack rocks in a pile, at least you would have a pile of rocks at the end of it. You know? Like, we are, and, and again, they're not saying this to other demographics, are they? They're not saying, and again, I bring this back to the fact that you are under attack. Spiritually, morally, physically, culturally, in many different ways, and you see this all the time. I don't want this to be the case. I don't want them to constantly go, white men should do nothing. By the way, we're going to promote everyone else on the basis that they're not white men. Right? That's why they're so invested in promoting these people. That, to me, is monstrous. It's an evil thing that is happening, and yet it's happening every day, and you're going to be struggling against that tide your whole lives. I just, I, honestly, it's, it's so atrocious. Sorry, you this is more of a question for you as a father. Mm. I'm interested in how you specifically teach your children um, to value the institutions of this country, mm. which are in a state of decay and have been for some time, without adding in kind of corrosive nostalgia, which teaches them that they're never going to be able to get it back to what it was. Mm. So I'm just interested in how you specifically... Well, or if you do, or how you do. Uh, the, my, my sons are a bit too young for that, to be honest. Uh, and my daughter is um, a fairly typical woman. Uh, she's 14 and is interested in boys and makeup and hair products. So I don't actually have those conversations with her. Um, well, if I, if I might say something that you've said to both me and Calvin on. before, yep. it's that the way that you are keeping some spirit of it alive is when your son once asked you, Dad, are we Christian? And you yourself are not, but you said yes anyway, because you didn't want to deprive him of that heritage. Yeah. So you are doing that in a way. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, but it's it's very difficult because I wasn't raised with any of this. Mm. And so it brings up very strange feelings. I don't understand them. I don't know how to control them. And I don't, I don't know how to properly impart it. Right. So I don't know yet, but um, I'll discover it as I go, as I think most of us do with a lot of things. Um, but to be honest with you, I don't have much hope for a lot of these institutions. I mean, what, what is there at the moment that you would look around at and say, this is going to last for 20 years? Uh, seriously, what, what do you think will last for another 20 years? The NHS? Has that got another 20 years in it, of the state it's in? You know, nearly 15% uh, nearly, uh, of the country is on some kind of NHS waiting list at the moment. Like, don't get sick. That's all I'm saying, right? Uh, the benefits, you know, 
Is that going to last? Pensions, are they going to last? The roads are going to last? Like, it's genuinely concerning. So I, d I don't know. I don't know. Yes, chap. Oh, sorry, no, sorry, that chap was up first. You talked before about how, you know, the government, they're not making things better because maybe they don't know what better is, how to make it better. But you're also talking about, you know, certain African groups or different groups of people, they're not, you know, they're not refugees, they're not fleeing from a war, they're not yeah. migrants, they're being put in hotels, they're getting given money, they're getting given, like, uh, maybe they're not stolen bicycles, maybe like, you know, free second-hand bags and tips, and like that, you know, they're, but they're getting put into communities in the middle of nowhere, there's not really many jobs and stuff going, but they're just being like put there. Mm. And you're not thinking that maybe this is intentional in a way to kind of like, they don't want it to get better, they want to drive it down, they want to drive down services, they want to drive it down so they don't have to do it anymore, and they've just got more service to work, shit jobs and stuff. Um, there's a bit of a mix. Having spoken to quite a few people in the Westminster bubble, they're genuinely clueless idiots. Uh, and that, that doesn't exculpate them from the moral crime that they've committed by robbing us of our culture. Absolutely not. But lots of them see the inverse demographic pyramid coming down the pipe with the fact that our birth rate... Did anyone see the ONS birth rate um, that came out, statistics, about two weeks ago? So, reminder, replacement rate is 2.1 children per woman. The UK is at 1.49 at the moment. If you're wondering about Maloney, the Italian rate is one. Yeah. So in, a, in about 30 or 40 years, Italy's Italian population is going to halve. Yeah. And bear in mind, this is everywhere except Sub-Saharan Africa at the moment is currently trending that way. And even they are knocking off one child every 10 years. But India is below sub-replacement rate. They've just hit a billion, but they're trending in the same direction. So they don't know how to fix this problem. I, I think it's probably a product of industrial modernity, but they don't want to confront that. The, the, well, the, uh, there's one answer, and nobody wants to admit it. It's birth control. That too. Right. It's birth control. That it's too. the fact that women have the option of doing this that makes it possible. And one of, one of, one of the things, that I think you're exactly right, they think, I, I'm absolutely certain that they do think that, well, we've got to pay the pensions. So, okay, well, they're going to have to go. Like, the idea of a state pension is actually not very old. It literally, it's like post-World War II or something yep. like that. It's literally just after World War II. Uh, this is kind of an experiment. Can a society maintain a pension scheme? And no, because it's a pyramid scheme. Right? You need an ever-growing population. And if the, <laughs> if the, old, the, the old segment of that pyramid continues to grow, then the thing will collapse. Again, it just can't pay for itself. So we're going to, at some point in your lifetimes, you're probably going to have to think about, okay, what do we do in the future if there are no pensions? Or what did people do in the past, actually? They had close families. You know, they would look after their grandparents. This is something that the boomers won't have to do, but you may well have to think about that. Because, I mean, how old are you guys, roughly? 20? Yeah. So in 40 years' time, you think Ahmed is going to be paying for your pension? I don't think he wants to. Uh, not right. just he doesn't want to. A little while ago, the World Health Organization surveyed people working in the social care industry. So they asked the workers themselves, and at least one third of them admitted to abusing their own patients. They don't care about you. They They're literally mercenaries. You. They have yeah. come here for money. And the thing is, we know that they will just leave when the getting is not good, because already 600,000 of them a year leave. So basically... We're waiting for the collapse, so millions of them will just go. They'll just go of their own accord.
right? When this place is no longer worth coming to. So again, don't get, don't, you know, it's, you might think, well, I'll just have a foreign guy who's paying my pension and taking care of me in a nursing home. No, you might not actually, you know? And also, and let's say you did, foreigners are just as uh, susceptible uh, to the, the, the birth rate spiral as we are. You know, there's gonna come a time where countries less liberal than our own will just say, no, you're not allowed to leave. You're not allowed to leave. We need you to pay the pensions of the people here. And so this, this whole experiment from the 20th century, the, for, the 20th century lays like a dead hand on our civilization. Like it wasn't always like this. And I know that I keep saying this, but I really want you to take this in. It used to be that we actually had a vibrant civilization that was outwards looking and was doing things in the world rather than con constantly subsumed under the world. And I, I know it sounds wild to hear, but that's really what it was like. But sorry, anyway, who, who next has their hand up? So, um, just everything you've talked about pretty much, I guess immigration being the top one, this relates more to ICE, parties and government. How much of this is attributable in your mind to maliciousness and how much of it is due to just incompetence? So Connor already said that he thinks it's incompetence. Well, mix, definite mix. I think, I, think, I, think, I think Michael Gove, there is a place in the deepest circle of hell for that human being. Yeah. Um, and also, but, but the reason I say it's incompetence... What, what, what's the, sorry, what, what's that libertarian, Steve something? Steve Baker. Yeah, oh God. Yeah, he I, was, I was next to him yesterday. Some, sometimes I, I just pray for the collapse. Part of it is genuinely that they're wedded to a managerial mindset where they can only value things they see on a spreadsheet. And so if they can't create genuine growth that's competitive with other countries, what they'll do is they'll just battery farm Africans. Because funnily enough, lots of people don't even realize um, state spending is counted as part of GDP. So if they just bring people over and then keep it so that money's changing hands and basically create a laundry of just redistributing tax to people that need it the most, then it looks like more people equals more good. Same reason why they're doing the um, institutional childcare thing. They want to eliminate motherhood so that more money is changing hands. Dan Tubbs used to work in, which Conservative MP was it? I can't remember. He, he worked for one of the Conservative MPs. And so he was in many of these meetings. And what all they would do is just divide the population by the average wage of the country and say, okay, well, then we need more population in order to create growth. But of course, that's not how it works, is it? And everyone knows that's not how it works. But, um, but yeah, they're, they're wedded to this model because I've, I really think this is the case. They're just afraid of being left holding the bag when it turns out the pensions can't be paid. I, and I think they don't want that to be their legacy. And so I don't actually think much of it is maliciousness. I think it's fear, actually, cowardice, that we don't have statesmen anymore. Because a statesman would stand up and say, look, this cannot go on. These are the facts. This is what we're doing. And this is what will end up collapsing. So we have this option, this option, or this option. We need to have a public debate about this. But of course, none of them are like that. Because they, they're basically... I, I wish it was malevolence. I wish it was malevolence, right? Because then at least we could be like, right, we need the fellowship to take the ring to Mordor. Simple. We've got it sorted. They're not even evil. That's the problem. They're selfish careerists. And they're just selling everything out. They don't care. It's, they're they're going to be on a golden parachute out of this, right? They're going to look at Nick Clegg being the, the, the CEO of Facebook in England or Britain or whatever, right? It, that's where they're going. And that's where they intend to go. If they were trying to kill us at at least be easier to deal with it. Uh, yes, chap up there, sorry, come to you. Um, if you had to, like, maybe it's because I come from Brighton, so I have a very 
a depressing view of what the what, what the average person will accept. Yeah. But there's a kind of like <laughs> it's a kind of like respite yeah. on in the right way. Goes oh, but look, they may have the corporations, they may have the state, but you know the sort of private like uh, associations that we create, like our you know local chapter or something yeah. like the scouts, or whatever. All these nice the nice things that we we created in the past that we sort of have now, like golf associations. As long as we have those, the common man will come back and will you know return back everything. And then you sort of realize that like, every, common people can accept quite a lot of things. And so is there, and so this kind of begs the question of, can, do we need, if we, can, even if we can get back the elite, the institutions, can we redeem the plebs? <laughs> can we redeem the, because as we saw in the Roman Empire, the plebs basically ruin everything. So can you actually redeem them in any way? I, I think that's totally unfair, actually. Um, <clears throat> Again, a hundred years ago, the average man or woman in England was a pretty decent fellow. You know, the, I'm, I'm currently reading a book called *In Search of England* by Henry Morton. There's a journalist who nearly died in Palestine, uh, got worried that he'd never see England again, and came back and just drove around and documented what he found. And all of the people there are just—I mean, I would call them high-quality people. Even even the farmers he speaks to, you know, they're they're not stupid. They're not indecent. You know, they're good and virtuous people. Uh, and so they could be again. There's nothing stopping them. And actually, I think the average person who probably is a pretty decent fellow. The problem is the 20th century lays on them like a dead hand. They don't know that it's weird to have the BBC. Right? It's weird, civilizationally speaking, to have a single point where the government can propagandize the entire population. That's never happened before. Like, how, how would that happen in, like, the 15th century? You know, it's really weird. It's really unusual. Um, and actually, we're, we may well, because of the decentralization of the internet, be heading into a time where that's no longer the case. And so other mechanisms have to be considered when it comes to the political interplay of people. But also, I don't think it, we need to worry too much about what the average man or woman really thinks, right? Because they're not personally going to get involved in politics. They just want to pay their taxes to whoever the king is, right? And that's the way, it, the way it's always worked. The average person doesn't really want to be invested in Westminster politics or to be concerned about the king's brother raising an army and going to knock off the king. And he, he doesn't care. He's, he wants to live his life. So if you think of yourselves as one of the political class, really just make sure you've got some of them on the side. That's all you need to do, really. You don't need to expect anything from them other than moral support, really. Who here knows what Dino is? Good. Wonderful. For those who don't... Um, if the Dino thesis. Yes. If you've seen about 10 seconds of Love Island, you will have spotted him. Um, he, he drives a BMW on finance. He wears River Island gear. He lives in a Barrett New build with Mrs. Dino, right? It is a cruelty to inflict politics on the Dino. <laughs> it is. It's not right. there, was a, there was once a cultural safety net where civic society cared mainly about are we serving families rather than the trickle-up GDP stuff. And they didn't conscript them into one grand progressive goal of stewarding history towards its inexorable arc. Because Dino's not capable of that. And Dino, it's not his fault, he's actually pretty happy to be left alone. Same with Baz up north in, in Weatherspoons, chatting about the missus. He's a nice bloke, sort of the earth guy. So I wouldn't hold such contempt for said plebs. Also, if there is something encouraging, the radicalised telegram boomers that came out of COVID prove that there are some people that will be switched on when something is so egregious and in their face that it can no longer be denied. 
But one of the main points to take away from that, and you're hinting at late theory, which I'm persuaded by somewhat, um, the deracination of civil society, scouts being a great example, particularly now that that's mixed sex, same with the cadets, same with boys clubs and the like, um, that was a legal thing, that wasn't a cultural thing. And so sometimes law can dictate culture. So it has to be from both directions. There has to be a group of salt of the earth, culturally um, safeguarded people that aren't necessarily politically engaged. And at the top, you need people who serve their interests without relying on them um, for the legitimacy of their cause at all times. You, you shouldn't need them all voting in order to, to have that. Um, so yeah, we need legal reform and also for Dino to be left alone, and that'll be a lot healthier. Um, chat. Uh, I know it's a really depressing topic, but what, how concerned are you about the developments in neurotechnology? In, sorry, neuro... Oh, okay, Musk's brain shit. Oh. Cyberpunk dystopia time? Well, I mean, I don't think that you should have a mobile phone, so yep. get a brain chip at your peril. Yeah, but, okay, and this is this is the short-sightedness of, of some tech critics. Um, <laughs> I'm a devotee of King Ludd, okay? No, Smash I, the I, machines. I agree. But Larry and Jihad now. I agree, but the problem you have with that <laughs> is that much like the mobile phone, it will become the prerequisite for market participation. Yes. So we do, do well. all of our meetings in the metaverse um, sorry, you can't have this job unless you have the brain chip. And so, and this is this is the same thing with the trans debate. This is the thing that I had a locked horns with Helen Joyce about because she's still lib femme, right? Liberal feminist, um, bless her heart. And she thinks you can just enforce the Equality Act, and suddenly women's spaces will be protected. And if you just have adult human female there, that'll be right. The, the size. Yeah, deep, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you even imagine? Yes. Um, and the problem is when reproductive technologies or three D printed appendages become so eldritch horror level convincing that trans men and trans women are indistinguishable from men and women, where does that argument leave you? So you're in an arms race at all times with, with cultural and legal norms and technology. And so you can have um, cultural pushback. Most people are going to follow the incentives. And if the incentives leave that way, then there's going to be quite a lot of people that adopt neurotech without realizing the implications. You've just got to take an Amish view on this and not do it best you can. And the Amish seem to be doing all right because they have very low rates of things like diabetes and osteoporosis, and their population doubles every how many years. Um, like America's going to be majority Amish at this rate. So don't get the brain chip. Be Amish, I suppose. The, th the thing is, I think you make a good point that essentially the Dino is not going to be insulated mm. against the concept of the brain chip. He'll think this is convenient. Yeah. And that's just what it'll be. It'll be sold to him as a convenience. And before you know it, 90% of the population are chipped and you're being hunted down like some sort of weird freakish renegade who's against the idea of having a brain chip forcibly inserted into your skull. Well, how else is he going to play FIFA with Smithster on the weekend? Exactly. <laughs> no, that's exactly it. So uh, I'm, I'm rather pessimistic about technology. Uh, on the plus side, though, I think there's going to be a massive collapse. I think that um, basically in a few generations, there'll be no one who knows what this is. It'll be treated as a mystical demon. Yeah. And... It already there, is a demon. Yeah, and there will be no one who can fix it when it breaks. So actually, I think the cycle will continue and eventually will be like the old Germanic tribes looking at the Roman ruins going, must have been made by giants. Uh, so, You've been talking to Rory a lot. No, I just think that's really what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, sorry, chap in the... Uh, yeah, yeah, we'll go to you next. Um, Carl, you mentioned riding the tiger and Carl, you mentioned sort of the mundanity of the evil that we have. What do you guys think about AI just having managerialism 
forever. I mean, it's, I can't think of a worse vision of hell. It won't be forever because you can't maintain it. I mean, the, the more human beings build complex systems that render ourselves obsolete, it will be like, has anyone seen the film Brazil? Okay, um, that is basically deathly science. Go away and watch it. It's not very good, but it, it, it will describe our future. And that is, in Brazil, there's a totalitarian government that keeps blaming all these bombings on terrorists, but you never see the terrorists. What you do see are a bunch of incompetent plumbers who show up with endless amounts of paperwork but never actually fix things. And then things always break behind the walls and no one knows how to fix them. So the explosions are actually just society crumbling around them. And the generations of people that have been put in place since they've built it, they blame it on some abstract force when really everything's just deteriorating. And so what will happen with the AI is at the moment they're trying to like control the amount of information that goes into it. Um, take a peruse of Joe Biden's AI Bill of Rights anytime because that's a real doozy. Comes up with the phrase malinformation. Malinformation is truthful information shared outside its appropriate context, and that can't be put in the AI. So any crime statistics, they've got to go out. That's awful. Um, so the AI will be lobotomized, and it'll be woke. But as soon as there's a tech hiccup in it, generations down the line, there'll be people too thick to fix the thing, and then it will just wither away. And the people, again, that have insulated themselves in a way of life that isn't under the purview of the AI, they'll be the ones that will be all right. Um, so you kind of, both of you kind of alluded uh, many times about um, this idea of kind of decline and the, na the nation declining, um, and also it kind of being brought about because sort of people are sort of coming over and sort of, um, I suppose like vultures sort of feasting on the carcass of our society. Um, is, with, with the way about going about to, I suppose, if we can try and fix it, um, is it to try and bring about decline to stop this happening sooner? Or do you worry that this would, destroy the good things that we still have? I think fundamentally it's that the promises made in the 20th century are unsustainable. Uh, and so it doesn't matter actually what we do, really. This will eventually come to an end. Uh, so whether we want that sooner rather than later is probably out of our control, actually, uh, unless anyone's got a direct line to Rishi Sunak yeah. um, or Keir Starmer. Uh, there's, there's probably not that much we can do other than just grin and bear it at the moment. Um, but I mean, the, the, the political system is not t totally unresponsive. Uh, the problem is there's no kind of, I suppose, what you call critical consciousness in the English community in Britain. Like the, the native people of Britain just feel silent, right? When do you ever hear a concern about the native people of Britain? It's all minoritarian interests, all day, every day, in the newspapers, in political speeches, or it's some abstract managerial concern about money, pensions, things. You never get to hear your sort of personal concerns represented in politics. And I think really until there is a kind of critical consciousness that the left spent the last 40 years raising in these minority groups. I mean, can you imagine a more ridiculous certain uh, phrase than the LGBT community. Well, that's a, that's a comical thing to hear. What, the lesbians, the gays, the transsexuals, and a community that transcends time? No, they don't. No, they don't. They don't have children. There can be no community of these things. What this is, is a class, and they're creating a class interest. Um, but this is the thing, this consciousness raising that they've done this whole time is about weaponizing interest groups. And the majority of the population the normal familial population of the country has no voice. And so they're just like, okay, well, I feel alone. I feel quiet. I don't have any way 
of begging for some sort of political representation, even though we're paying all the taxes. We're producing all of the people they expect to be the ones who are actually, you know, lifting them out of beds when they're old and things like this. You know, and yet we get no representation whatsoever. So, uh, but anyway, I, I just don't think it can continue. Uh, far be it for me to be the optimistic one. <laughs> um, Go ahead. Uh, also, if MI5 are listening, no, I don't endorse accelerationism. I don't don't get involved in that whatsoever. Also, because you don't really need to, because they're doing a good yeah. enough of job of destroying the country on their own. Look how quickly it's ruining itself. Yes. <laughs> However, I think fortunately in the last year or so, we have had two, one stronger than the other, fissures at which it shows the regression of those minoritarian concerns, and that is the Queen's funeral and the coronation. For a few days, unapologetically, there was pomp, there was pageantry, bit scaled back, unfortunately, thanks to old Charlie boy. But we did not hear the prattling of intersectional concerns for a few days. And instead, there were peaceful crowds largely turning out. I was down there at the Queen's funeral for a few hours, predominantly indigenous English that made the effort from all over the country to come down and pay, pay their respects. Um, and you don't even have to be the most devout monarchist to, to realise that this is an institution that reflects how the English think of themselves. And that is why they, they poured out. So there is still that wellspring of sentiment there we can, we can tap into. And the final thing I will say, and, and I went to a, a thing at Parliament yesterday, um, there are some people within the halls of power that are sympathetic to what we say, to the point of where they may have even watched our show one, two, one or two times. Um, it's just that they don't wield a lot of influence now. And the fortunate thing is, as long as they can keep their seats, they share my prediction for what will happen in the future. And that is as follows. The Tory's going to lose. Shock. Um, Penny Morden will be appointed as the continuity candidate because she can carry a sword and you think she's fit. And... She is. Mid. Um, and you like Billie Eilish, man. Honestly. I can fix her. Um, <laughs> what will happen is when various lawsuits and various pieces of legislation come to forward about the trans issue, her record is going to look so abysmal that the fierce critics from the backbenches will be able to hit her on that record and we'll get someone far more suitable in place on the front benches. But that is playing the long game of about five or six years. And so. it requires the Conservatives to suffer the, just, the worst defeat in British electoral history, which actually they're on track to. Yeah. Uh, but prior to 2024, is it? Is, is it 24? May 24. Right. Um, the, the worst defeat was John Major to Tony Blair, 418. Uh, this, the, if, if the polling is anything accurate, uh, it's going to be nearly 500. Um, it's, it, it's going to be comically bad. Extinction event. Which, of course, will be called racism because it's Rishi Sunak. Um, but it's not about that at all, obviously. What it's about is the Conservatives not serving their base. Because, I mean, when, when everyone looks at the polls, they think, oh, my God, Labour is so high in the polls. Really what it is, it, when it actually comes to the voting, Conservative voters don't tend to vote Labour. They just don't vote. Six out of ten are not voting. Yeah. They just don't vote. And so the Conservative share just collapses. Uh, and you can probably, on the night, actually look and just the, you know, compare the number of votes that are counted. And I bet you see there's just a significant drop. And so it's not that the country's going left-wing or anything like that. It's that the Tories are a bunch of traitors and you can't support them. That's what it is. And that's what the public understands, thankfully. Um, and honestly, one thing that you could do is just make sure that you, the people you know know this. The Conservative Party are a bunch of traitors. Do not vote for them. Like, make it, articulate it, post it on social media. Make sure your friends and family know it. You know, the Conservatives are traitors. You can't vote for them. Um, sorry, was there, there was a chat, go ahead. 
So just, uh, you've touched on a few things that are regarding this. So if I put to you, both of you, that a large proportion of the responsibility or the, the, uh, the effect that we're suffering now, of the things you've talked about, is due to the destruction of the aristocracy that arose out of the European Civil War we call World War I, what would you think of that? I'm not sure I'd call it an accurate assessment. Um, I mean, I, I would need to see the number of actual nobles, aristocrats, who were killed in the war, um, because it seems to me that there were millions of normal people who signed up and died. I think the problem is the forces that were unleashed in the Enlightenment go way beyond anything anyone really expected. And I don't think, I mean, nationalism itself is a really interesting phenomenon because prior to nationalism, wars were just so much smaller. And it was Napoleon who famously quipped, well, they can't, the, you know, the Germans can't beat me. I'm spending 20,000 lives a month. That's twice the size of the army that conquered England at Hastings like, in, one, in one month. That's, it's, that's an army that's capable of conquering an entire nation, you would think. And yet the Enlightenment allowed a regular guy to just get a gun and go off and get shot, you know, and this, the, it changed the game completely. So I, it doesn't require aristocrats to have died. There is no feudal bond of loyalty that gets a band of brothers to go and fight for the king or anything like that. That's over now. You know, now it's the mechanical grind of the machine that pours bodies into it as just, and literally this is where the term comes from, cannon fodder. You know, you get people like Evola who are just like, this is the most monstrous term that has ever been invented because it treats the heroic warrior as a fungible good, like a bullet in a gun. You know, it's, it's disgusting. And no, I, I, I don't think it's the end of the aristocracy. I think the forces set in motion were set in motion long before. And it was just the natural progression of how power is unleashed because of the Enlightenment. Also, America clearly has an aristocracy. They're very entrenched and they just aren't the same moral characters as the people that set up the country. Again, successive generations that can't maintain a complex system. Um, and so what you will, you will always have some kind of aristocracy, it's just whether or not they are the kinds of characters that can uphold the thing that they have inherited. This is the conversation you had with Dan a little while ago in why America's falling apart and why, why society is being destroyed. If you create a propositional social contract nation and you presume a certain set of values which you believe are self-evident, as soon as the values are no longer self-evident to successive generations, then the terms of the contract are just there to be circumvented for personal gain. And so, I mean, we've got, we've got entrenched aristocrats now. It's just that they're pathetic and weak and don't believe in anything except their own, um, the, the plundering of the civilization as it falls apart. There's also something that, interesting you bring up social contract um, and propositional nations, right? Because there's something interesting. Because I can disagree with the proposition. I don't have to agree with your proposition. I don't believe that all men were created equal. I don't yep. believe that you were born free and yet everywhere you're in chains or anything like that. All of these propositions not only can be considered philosophically unsound, which they are, uh, but they can also be just considered flatly immoral. You know, they, like they, I saw a clip of a Chinese uh, student saying, and it was translated like, well, I don't like the American view of freedom because that's just when the individual wins. Uh, the socialist view of freedom is when the society wins. That's actually quite persuasive. That's actually a persuasive way of 
rendering immoral America as a civilization. Whereas if you go back to a sort of um, traditional way of looking at a civilization, you can't render the entire civilization immoral because they're people, they're real living people who possess the country, who live in the thing, who take care of it, who, who take their kids to school, farm the fields, live regular lives, and who are all in the, themselves moral agents that are not judged by some abstract standard that some guy dreamed up hundred years or two hundred years before, like, you, you've got a completely different way of looking at the world. You know, I can't just disagree with my country. You know, it's it is whether I like it or not. You know, it's not just a proposition. So I think that's an important thing to think about when we think about liberalism. Really, the the liberal order that we are seeing play out all around us. Because really, everything they're doing is in order to try and bring about the perfect utopia that was promised by liberalism. Right, that's what they're trying to do, whether they know it or not. And a lot of them as Connor said, are stupid, right? They don't know. They're just going on assumed priors, uh, which lead them to look very closely at what's happening and say, okay, well, I mean, we're just going to have to bring in migrants for the pensions because human beings are all the same fundamentally. That's what they, they don't say that, they just assume it. And of course, we presumably all know, no, actually, that would defeat the concept of diversity, wouldn't it, if people were all the same? Obviously, we're, all, we're actually all different, like even down to the very individual. Like, everyone is actually really radically different in lots of ways. So anyway, I'll leave that one there. The gentleman at the back set his hand up for ages. I apologise. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry to bring you up again. It's almost like a, the third non-present speaker, but you and Peter, uh, Peter Hitchens <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, strike a very similar tone. That of Cassandra, you've prophesied disaster, but you're cursed to have nobody listen to your prophecies. Um, and that's because... Um, Institutions and culture have been captured and the politicians are incompetent. But the solutions you've listed have been leave, start a family, go to church, have a manual labor job, go die in a war, look grim and bear it, accelerationism, or just let the conservatives lose. Um, is there any more holistic political project um, that isn't so individual? Um, yeah. Well, I hope I'm not striking the exact same tone as Peter Hitchens because I don't make money being the most miserable man in Britain. Um, and that, and that's, that's, that's true, actually. The reason Peter won't probably give some solutions, because he should, because he still has kids and grandkids that live here, is because he's wedded to being Cassandra, whereas I'd rather not be, because I still have a stake in the future. Um, I would be a hypocrite if I said that it was futile to attempt to organise and do things. I mean, the number one thing, the reason that I'm sat here and you're forced to listen to me, sorry, um, is that when I was at university doing that exact student society that, that dragged you to campus, we started a counter-institution to turn around and tell the government, well, you're spending loads of money on the green stuff and it isn't really going to work, is it? And made a little bit of headway, got some funding for some nuclear power plants and they didn't listen to me on anything else, so bounced out of Westminster. But it's worth doing something. I'm just saying don't disillusion yourself in thinking that you... Don't, don't put the burden of being able to change the trajectory of a civilization that is deaf to your concerns on your own shoulders. Because I've been there, and it makes you miserable, actually. Um, especially if you're a bit inclined to be like a workaholic, which a lot of young guys are. Like The reason why I, I said touch grass and ground yourself is because you can really throw yourself into this thing, and it can be the meat grinder. And it will, it will chew you up and spit you out and not care. So you do need to have a foot in, in the real world and also understand that you can't change everything at once, and so you need something to fall back on if it doesn't change. 
One, uh, one reason that things are going in this direction as well is that um, actually philosophy matters, right? It actually does matter. And we don't think about it on a daily basis. And often people are like, why would I do philosophy? Right? But actually, this really does matter. And the left knew it mattered, right? And so as soon as we, uh, after World War II, we rested our entire civilization on liberal priors. And since then, the left has done nothing but work out how they can erode and bastardize these into creating communism, which is what they're trying to achieve in all things, right? And you'll get people uh, who will say, well, critical race theories and communism. It's like, no, it in of itself is not the communist manifesto, uh, but it is the latest step in the, the attempt to tear down the traditional society that we inherited and instantiate the end goal of the enlightenment, which would be communism, right? So everyone trapped in this paradigm, almost everyone, has no idea that that's really happening. That is going on, whether they know it or not. This is what Tony Blair does, not without knowing this is what he's doing. He thinks he's making the world better, really we're marching towards this end point. Um, what you can do on a collective level is probably illegal for me to say. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> Disavow. Yeah, dis disavow Connor, because um, he said that. Um, what you can do on a collective level, I, and I do think you are right in this, Connor, you, you could organize, right? You absolutely can do this. Uh, but as Connor says, this is going to be depressing, right? Because uh, I don't think that we have the time to do what the left has done. Because you, you've got to remember that this, this project of the left began before the Soviet Revolution, right? They, at the, at the turn of the 20th century, leftist intellectuals realized that communism was not going to come about in the way that things are now. And so you had a bunch of outgrowths of this. You had fascism, you had Fabian society, you had Lenin with the Soviet Revolution. All of these things are because of the failure of communism to manifest, right? And in America in particular, you have critical race theory, which is currently what's infesting our civilization now. And this is an expressly Gramscian project. Gramsci being the Italian communist who died in prison because the fascists arrested him, right? In his prison notebooks, he makes the astute observation, and he is right about this, that civil society in the East was weak. No one in Russia supported the Russian institutions. And so actually, when the Tsar is overthrown, the provisional government comes in, actually one short, short sharp blow from a bunch of revolutionaries, doesn't have to be many of them, can knock the whole thing over. Chaos ensues and someone can fill the void, which is precisely what Lenin did. But that can't happen in the West, because actually we don't have a deeply corrupt, massively alcoholic society that hates itself and doesn't see a future for itself. Well, we didn't at the time anyway. And so they literally, and I can give you the citations for all of them. I mean, they're all on lotuses.com, obviously. For as little as five pounds a month. <laughs> but you are students, so I appreciate that <laughs> that might not be possible. But they they, they have, we, we have all of their essays where they explain, look, Kimberly Crenshaw in particular, in, in Mapping the Margins, says expressly, we need a Gramscian-style project in order to attack the sturdy earthworks of civil society. Because actually in the West, we had a lot of personal freedom, right? We had, and it's exactly the same, we were sort of the clubbable society, as Scruton would put it. We like autonomously getting together. We don't need to consult the government if you want to set up a chess club or something like that. Actually, there are lots of countries that that's not normal, right? That's actually quite an Anglosphere phenomenon where you actually don't need authority to have someone set up a little club. You can do this, right? Um, but they have been attacking these earthworks and fortifications for decades now. 
And they've come up with very sophisticated methods of doing it, intellectually sophisticated methods. Now, I don't think we've got the time to come up with our own intellectually sophisticated methods of reinforcing tradition or a non-liberal paradigm in the West. There is a strong one. We've got a very strong one, actually. Uh, and it's something that a lot of people are envious of us have, uh, for. But I don't think we've got the time to do that before whatever happens, happens. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I, you know, who knows? But all I can think of is that's really got to be where we're aiming for. Because what the, what the left has that we don't are mimetic silver bullets. Right? They can destroy anyone with a word, with a line, with a concerted campaign of just, here's that person's photo in the press and a word, as Russell Brand is currently getting right now, right? And so, and this all operates within the existing paradigm. This is what the left kind of found their way to get into and blow apart and exploit to their own agenda. I don't think we can do that, frankly. So I'm not sure, but obviously small-scale organizing is a great idea. I know I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here, but, um, but I think this is all important stuff that you should be aware of, because this is all that's happened. So. Right, I think that's all we've got time for, I'm afraid. Um, we have to cut the six o'clock, so a round of applause, please. <laughs>